Today we're going to be continuing in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And the theme here is the, is the eternal security in Christ. I've heard some say that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter of all the Bible. I think it was Steve Lawson had made mention of that, and someone came up to him and said, uh, well, isn't all the Bible great? Isn't it all God's word? And we should love it all equally. And he said, uh, would you like for me to read for you the first 17 verses of Matthew, which is all genealogy on your deathbed, or would you rather me read you Romans 8? I would rather be read Romans 8 myself. But R.C. Sproul said that if he could choose one chapter of the Bible, if the entire Bible had to go away and he could keep one chapter, he said Isaiah 53. So I would agree that that would probably be my, I would have to put him as a toss-up. So if Romans 8 was a song per se, I think what we're going to go over today would be the crescendo. It, it's, it's so magnificent. And I, uh, I love the topic that, that we're going to go over today. You know, in chapter 6, we're dead and made alive in the newness of life in Christ. We're slaves to sin. It was our master. We we're willing servants of sin. We were condemned by the law. And we were set free from the bondage of the law and this new creation in Christ as he kept the law perfectly on our behalf. The law is the, the, the character of God on full display. It's the, the standard of holiness which was seen in Christ Jesus. So we were dead, then made alive. We were slaves, then free, and then become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God, the Father, and who, who Christ did all the work for us. Like we're, we're servants, but we were served in a sense to where the work was done in Christ. We're justified in his sight for, for his glory. We're sanctified for his glory, and we'll be ultimately glorified for what? For his glory. We're beneficiaries of his glory. We, we, we reap the benefits of God's glory. Why, that's why God's glory is so important. The law couldn't save as, as we were weak in the flesh, but God accomplished it all in Christ. Christ was the one that was strong. His spirit now dwells in us, making us more like him. We have a renewed mind and inclined toward the things of God. We desire holiness because God is holy. He's producing holiness in us. We love holiness. The kicker is that we're still stuck in this unredeemed flesh and still battling with sin and that, that wages war within our members. We're set free from the curse of the law, as, as Paul mentions in Galatians. That the law, it, it doesn't save. It cannot save. Keeping of the law trying to keep the law it doesn't save but what it does is it shows us where we fall short of the glory of god and in our need of this perfect savior who, who is christ and then paul's going to move into another analogy today from slaves of righteousness to to adoption we're adopted sons of god charles spurgeon said that we could stand before god as if we were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were us. 
So you have that great right. You, you, can, you can stand in front of a holy and righteous father because Christ stood in your place. If you're able, please stand with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of adoption again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we... Thank you so much for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf that we may even come into your presence to, to give you the praise that is due your name. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Use me in spite of me. Lord, have your way with us this morning. We love you and we praise your holy name. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we all pray and all of God's children said, Amen. So you Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Having been raised to the dead and in, this life, in life in Christ, we, we no longer live in the flesh. It's dead. Victory over sin has been accomplished. So in verses 1 through 11 here in chapter 8, Paul reminds us that we are no longer condemned by the law awaiting God's wrath. We're, we've moved positionally out of that. We're seen as righteous in, in the eyes of God. Sin no longer has dominion over us as our, as our master. We're, we owe the, the sinful flesh nothing as being made alive in the spirit. We've renounced the flesh to, by the work of the spirit to consent to it no more. We, we, don't have to, we don't have to go there anymore. The spirit reigns in us and, and it's contrary to our new nature. We, we hate sin to, to go back to the old, old self. We're indebted to, the, to this new master, which is the spirit, the vine of the spirit. So this, this here's an exhortation to godly living. Allow the spirit to have its work in you. Not, not grieving him. Ephesians 4.30 tells us. And in sealiness until the day of redemption, the spirit has is, is sealed you until, until you're ultimately glorified in death so, so we're indebted not to not to the flesh we owe the flesh nothing but, but to the Holy Spirit the reign of sin and death have been defeated is being defeated continually and, and will ultimately be defeated completely as we still wrestle a little bit with our old dead body so we, moving on to verse 13, we see the result of, of living in the flesh. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's pretty straightforward. So life characterized by living in the flesh will, must die. The wages of sin is death. And, it, and 
Some say that this is a possibility, for, uh, a case that you, you can lose your salvation, and then that's not, that's not true. If you go back to verse 1 again, there's therefore no, more, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Any, any, anyone living in the flesh is unconverted. They, they were never of us, is, is what First John tells us. The, the spirit is not working in them because it's, it's absent. Their conscience is, is not convicted by the spirit. There's no confidence in God. There's no love of righteousness in their lives. They don't care about righteousness. And he, people want to play Christian, they were, oh, I go to church and uh, I, I give this away and I'm, I'm dedicated to this ministry and I worked with a guy and you would ask him, hey, are you a Christian? He's like, yeah, I run the sound at my church. Like, well, that's okay. That's not, I mean, it's good you're serving, but you know, what, it's not really the answer, you know. The answer is this, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe on the, the, the finished work of Christ Jesus on my behalf, and I put my faith in that. I trust in that. And then he goes on and says, But if, this, if by the Spirit you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a key word here, if. If by the Spirit. Like, all these pastors are, you best be doing this, and you best be doing that, and you must be you, you, you. It says, but it says, Paul says, if by the Spirit, not... Not you. You're not capable in and of yourself if by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper, the paraclete that, that comes uh, alongside us that Jesus promised in John 15. This, the one that helps, that aids us in, in, in helping us in righteousness. This, this Spirit is at war with, with the unredeemed flesh. And, and if you're not killing sin by the by the Spirit, you're not a child of God. Do you hate your sin? In Ephesians, Paul says the, the child of God is his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for good works. And James says that faith without works is dead. So mortification of the flesh is the Holy Spirit producing sanctification, making you more like Christ and his Father. We learn in chapter 7 that Paul admitted that he, he, he wasn't flawless. He, he, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, and, and dealing with wrestling with that flesh, and you've got this new mind with the old body, and you're contending with sin that's in your life. And, but, but he never gave up. He, 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 his eyes were fixed on the Lord. He, he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said, I think, I think my God in Christ. That's the deliverance. So... The lives that are not characterized by the, the, the spirit-led life that it, and, and claim the name of Christ, I'm a Christian, you've taken his name in vain. That's the ultimate taking the Lord's name in vain. Do you know that? Say, saying that and not living it because the spirit's absent. You don't, you don't, you don't need to doubt your salvation if you sin. What you do is confess it. If you sin, the Spirit's going to convict you, and you need, then you confess it, and then you, you, you move on. You know, conviction, if, if you can willfully sin and there's no conviction, then yes, doubt your salvation. 1,000% doubt your salvation, because if the, 
if the Spirit's not working in you. That's the product of it. A true Christian will identify with David in saying, my sin is ever before me. We confess along with Paul, I find a, a law of evil of, uh, present in me, working this sin that's in me, working against my new nature, and, and I'm wrestling with it. A law of evil that's present. You won't be sinless, but you'll, you'll be ever aware of your sin. You, you, the knowledge of your sin is going to increase, right? It's going to be a burden at times. And that burden of sin is it's really not even yours to carry anymore. It's, it's been paid for. You confess it and move on. You confess it wholeheartedly and move on. With a broken and contrite heart, you confess it. And like David says, search me, O God, and know my, my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The Spirit working in you, do you let the Spirit have its way with you? A Spirit-led life is a, a redeemed life. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit working in you. You will sin, but you will hate it. The Spirit convicts and you confess. And, and Paul begins to tell us of our, our new position here. This is where it gets good. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Previously referred to as slaves of righteousness, that's a really good place to be. That's a good position in and of itself. Christ being our new master. A little side note here. The reason why Paul doesn't say sons and daughters, women are included, the reason he says it like this, he says sons, is because sons was were the heir in Roman culture. Women weren't heirs. Women didn't carry on the family name. That's the reason. If someone desires what is good and holy, that is a testimony of the Holy Spirit that's at work in their lives. The things of God are at the forefront of all of their being. If you desire to be like him, you're his child. It's simple. That's the spirit working in you. Our led here is, I go, it means to be led or to be led by oneself by an accompanying. Which is an interesting way to think of that. Like, I'm led by myself, but accompanied. The paraclete, the helper that Christ promised. And this tense here is present, passive, indicative. Present is an active and continually, right? It's passive as in it's being done to you. Indicative, it's a fact. It's not hypothetical. The perfect spirit of God is at work in you. Your awareness of sin is ever increasing. It's always going to be increasing and increasing at We've been, we've been over that. You don't, you don't normally don't feel better about yourself as you get older and understand how holy God is and how short you fall. So it doesn't really get easier per se. 
because that knowledge, the more, the closer you get to God, the further away you feel sometimes as far as your sanctification goes. Leading is often interrupted by sin, but it, it never ceases, right? It's when you, when you mess up and you're brokenhearted, and it, it, that's, that's a work of the Spirit convicting you. Another indication that you're being led by the Spirit is your understanding Scripture. Before, before, this, before salvation, you couldn't really understand Scripture because it was foolishness to you. You didn't, you, you could care less. Are you going to be an overnight master of all things biblical? Absolutely not. I don't think you're going to be that even in eternity. I think we're all going to keep learning forever and ever of the glories of God. And the Spirit stirs up anger when you hear it misquoted or taken out of context. You know, or even if you're not angry, you're just sitting there like, well, that's not quite right. Something's not right with what that guy just said. It doesn't sit well with me. That's the Spirit of God testifying. like, that's wrong. How does he do that? He wrote it. I wrote that, and that's not what I said. So this internal testimony of the Spirit means we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit aids us in obedience to the, to the Word of God that he inspired the the work of the Holy Spirit goes beyond our abilities. He, he always makes up where we fall short. And obedience is in sanctifying us. Walking in the Spirit is to concede to the leading of the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 tells us to walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the work of the Spirit that puts to death the deeds of the flesh. So having been transformed from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness and ultimately children of God, Paul gives us the means by which we become children of God via adoption. And he says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So we've been set free being made from being slaves of sin. It's no longer our master. We no longer live in fear of God's righteous judgment because it's not coming anymore. This fear is the, the whip of the old master just keeping you down. You know, it was. The sad thing is you really didn't even know it until you realized you needed a savior. You were just going along. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ took on flesh and de defeated the old master, which is Satan. We're no longer under his dominion. We, we no longer fear you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now this is, we think of adoption in modern terms. You want a child for whatever reason. And you go out and go through the necessary steps to adopt a child. Usually the child is fairly young. In Roman adoption, this wasn't the case. An adopted, it was always a male, never women. The reason was to, to continue the family name. And this, like a person might not have a son, but he has to continue that. He wants to have an heir. So 
they will adopt a, a male in his late teens, maybe early 20s, the father of a household, he either may not have a son or his son may have died, who knows. So this Roman adoption is a very serious process. It's, it, it's lengthy, it's long and drawn out, You're getting to know the new family and, and convincing a father to sell his own son, you know, that's, a, that's another thing. Now, then in Rome, a, a, a son never came of age. If you're 50 years old, you did what your dad said. It didn't matter. You never were not under your father's control. This was known as the patria potestis, or the father's power. And there were several steps in this adoption process. The first was emancipato. It, it's where we get the word emancipation. You're freed from the the old family, the old father. You're emancipated from that old father. And it was carried out by a symbolic cell. So you had um, it was copper and, and some symbolic scales. Um, and the, the father would sell his son. And then he would sell him and then buy him back. And then he would sell him again and he would buy him back. And then the third time, and this was, you know, he's reluctant. You're giving up your son. So there was that reluctance there, and that's what that demonstrated. And the third time, he didn't buy him back. And in this final sale, that, that son lost all rights uh, or privileges under the old father, the patria potestas. He, he was no longer, longer, no longer under his dominion, but was free. So after that was complete, it, it was called vindicatio, where we get vindication. So the adopting father would go to the a Roman magistrate called a praetor, and he would make his case to, to have this person come under his patria potestas. And while this was complete, the adoption was legal and binding. He was that man's son. Now here's the significance of the Roman adoption and what Paul is using this analogy, why Paul is using this analogy. The adopted person lost all rights to his old family. He no longer under his father's dominion. His new, he's under his new father, his new patria potestas. In the most legal and binding way, he is that man's son. The son became an heir to that father uh, he could not be legally disowned. The old, if, if you wanted to disown your son or even kill your son in Roman that time, it was fine. You could do that. You could take your own son's life, disown him. You had total control. Live or die, it was up to the father. The adopted son could not be killed or disowned. It's illegal. This new son had this assurance. By law, the old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out. It was as if he had never lived. All of his debts were canceled. He was not liable for anything to any, anyone or anybody, right? It was as if he was just born or born again.
he begins this new life, learning of his new father, and would ultimately emulate his new father's behavior as, the, as this new son. It wasn't uncommon for a master to adopt one of his servants, which is what we see here, and that's not anything new at all. Even, even Abraham thought that he was going to have to leave everything to one of his servants for a little while. So we go from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness to adopted sons and daughters. The spirit of fear is no longer your master, no longer your old father. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are of your father the devil, and his works you will do. You are no longer his child. You got all the rights and privileges of your new father. John 1, those that believe were given the right to be called what? Children of God. Now by the Spirit, by whom, here we, we can cry out, Abba, Father, or Abba, Pater. Abba is a Aramaic, it's, it's more of a, an endearing term for your father. It, uh, it's like a small child saying father. In Mark 14, 36, our Lord uses the same language. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Abba, Father. He approaches his father that way. He says, Abba, Father. It's, I've always kind of wrestled with this. It's, it's just, you're saying father, father. Now, I couldn't find anything in a commentary to support what I'm about to say, but I think it's worth noting that when, when Jews emphasized anything, they said it twice. Amen, amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, um, truly, truly. It was an emphatic statement, like, like father, father, like or father of fathers, maybe. By using two different words here, pot, pater would, would be a, a, a more respect-driven address, the, the patria potestis, the ultimate patria potestis. And then Abba, in approaching it as, as Abba, it's, it's a... A dependence. It's emphasizing a dependence as a as a as a child, while while showing that same respect that his due his name. You're coming as a child with a dependence and a relationship free of anxiety. Even though he's an awesome God and Father, and we have that same right to approach the Father with the same language, Abba, Father. When the Father sees us, he sees Christ in, in us. We are, we are his children with all the same privileges. In Ephesians 2, it, it tells us that we were adopted solely for his good pleasure. He also chose us before the foundation of the world, before he created Adam or anything else. He had chosen you and predestined you unto adoption from all eternity. 
We're born in sin, redeemed by Christ, adopted by the Father. Our old father, Patria Potestas, is non-existent as far as we're concerned. It was as if we were born again because we were born again with a new father. For Roman adoption to be legal, you had to have seven witnesses. And this was done in case the, the, the father died and there was some kind of dispute about who the heir was. So it was unlikely that seven witnesses would die before the, the father would and, and you would have some left to testify of the adoption. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This, this testimony is not for others' sake. We don't need... <laughs> the Spirit's not bearing witness to Josh that I'm a child of God, even though the, the fruits of my salvation would indicate that. It's not for our sake. It's not for anyone's sake. It's for us. The Holy Spirit, who cannot lie is the ultimate witness. It's the Spirit of God. How, how, how great a, greater of a witness do you need? The Spirit is always testifying to, to the assurance of our adoption. And he works in several ways. You've got illumination. The Spirit testifies to the truth. He inspired. Scripture has made sense to us by the work of the Spirit. Sanctification. The Spirit will ultimately make you more like Christ, conforming us into his image. We'll have this longing for, for God. We'll have a longing to be in his word. The fruits of the Spirit are continual. This continual testimony is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self-control. The product of this internal testimony is good works. When... when when things, these things are experienced, it testifies that our, our adoption is true. We, we then have this deep hatred for sin in our lives by, by which the, the Spirit convicts us as we strive for holiness by the work of the Spirit. We have a love for other Christians. We desire fellowship with them. All these things are a work of the Holy Spirit testifying that we are sons of God. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a guarantee, as a seal of, of redemption in 2 Corinthians. The heart of the child of God is linked to the Father by the Holy Spirit. It's the same. It's, it's almost like if he put his own heart in us, it's his spirit in us. The Spirit empowers us for service to the Father as we become witnesses for Christ, Acts 1 tells us. It convicts us when we sin, and then it turns right around and comforts us after the conviction. It's like, you messed up, but I love you. The comforter. The Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, as we'll learn later here in chapter 8. It's also interesting to note that the Holy Spirit is the, the sevenfold Spirit of God. We had seven witnesses. We have the sevenfold Spirit of God. One is wisdom. Mark Twain said that uh, good decisions come from experience, and experience, well, it comes from poor decisions. <laughs> I can relate. But wisdom is the application of knowledge, so you 
<laughs> you make this poor decision, and you're like, I probably shouldn't do that again. So that's wisdom. And the second one's understanding. You will grow in your understanding of the things of God continually. Fortitude, you will not give up. You will keep striving for that prize. Knowledge, you were once blind, but now you can see. Made alive in Christ, you have knowledge of things, the things of God. Piety, living out your salvation by and the work of the Spirit. Working out your salvation. Fear of the Lord. It's this healthy fear. Living in awe of his majesty. And his great love in which he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Holy Spirit's busy to say the least, right? These things are how the Spirit of God testifies that we are children of God. You know, the, I was thinking about how people will pay really good money and a lot of it to hear a lie. And you might have a handful of people show up for the truth. These health and wealth and prosperity preachers are always trying to sell you on something. You want a bigger house, just, just claim it in Jesus' name. You want, a, you want a fancy car, you just go ahead and claim that in Jesus' name. You've got to lay hold of it. You've got you to envision it, and man, it'll be manifested because God wants you to have whatever you want. So these lies are just selling lies. And the most important thing in all this process is that you must mail them a check. You've got to plant that seed of faith in order for these things to, to go ahead and happen. You've got to sow that seed of faith and then, then go ahead and claim it and you know, work on your best life now. and Everything's going to be great. They're selling you on worldly things. It's, there's nothing wrong with a bigger house or a nicer car or even, I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy? That's kind of a no-brainer. But those things aren't always going to happen. In a hundred years, what's it going to matter? How healthy you were, how wealthy you were, or any of that. Verse 17, he says, if and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ. Slaves of righteousness, then on to sons, then heirs, and even better, joint heirs with Christ. No other qualifiers here to be an heir of God. It doesn't say if creatures heirs. It doesn't say if children of Abraham heirs. It doesn't say you are some great servant, so therefore you're an heir. It's not ceremonial. It doesn't say if baptized or circumcised, then heirs. Only qualifiers, have you been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? Do we have the spirit of adoption? Do we desire to be like God? Do you trust in Christ alone for your salvation? If yes, then heirs. If not... I urge you to consider these things. Our airship is universal. 
It doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't, whatever. The, the love of God is the same for us all. He, he loves you with the same love that he has for his eternal son that he had spent eternity with before all of this ever occurred. We're blessed with the same promise made to Abraham, Hebrews Hebrew 6 tells us. We're equally related to Christ as, as Christ was the firstborn among many brethren, we know. Inheritance is infinite. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, all will inherit the kingdom. They're all heirs. There's no distinction. There's no qualifiers. Beneficiaries of his glory. Heirs of all things. He, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, Revelation 21 tells us. All things are yours, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 tells us. We are heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1, 14. Heirs of eternal life, Titus 3, 7. Heirs of grace, 1 Peter 3, 7. Heirs of righteousness, Hebrews 11, 7. Heirs of the kingdom, James 2, 5. To be heirs of God is to be heirs of everything that God possesses. Everything. What does God possess? <laughs> everything. They're trying to fly to Mars. Like, I will own Mars one day, okay? I don't have to try to get there now. Save your money. Don't get on that plane. Don't get on a submarine either. Don't do that. We are heirs of everything. Joint heirs with Christ. All that he created, all that can be known and unknown. The Where does the universe end? If it did end, what's beyond that? We don't know. You're heirs of that. Inheritance is everlasting. We're heirs with Christ, through Christ, and in Christ. Our security in Christ is our greatest inheritance. Without it, you don't inherit anything. He paid it. He sustains it. Life with Christ is our ultimate inheritance because we will spend the rest of eternity with him. Dead men don't inherit anything. At all. And in the second part of verse 17, it says, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. If, if here is not a possibility, it's not, it doesn't represent, well, this might happen. This is absolutely going to happen. John MacArthur says our ultimate glorification comes through suffering. Matthew 5 says we will be mocked and many have been wounded and killed for their faith. John 15, you know, Jesus tells the disciples, the world hated me first. And the world is going to hate you. First Thessalonians tells us, chapter 3, verse 3 says, Do not be shaken of, by afflictions because they were appointed. They were appointed by God. Read Job. This whole world is under control of Satan. It, he's the, the father of, of the world system. We are going to suffer persecutions from, from mockery all the way up to martyrdom. There's some that are going to die for their faith. It's pretty heavy. 
Our relationship with Christ ensures us of bare minimum mockery. But it's not all in vain. As we'll be glorified as he is, we'll be made like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, we will see him and he will be, and we will be made like him. Full sanctification means no sin. The conversations you had, you know, what do you, what do you look forward most to about being in eternity and in, in, in the presence of our Lord? And, you know, I want to meet this person. I want to talk to this person. And I want to be sinless because I'm disgusted and hate, I hate it. All that stuff is great. I want to know what it's like to be completely like Christ, completely made, full sanctification, fully delivered from sin, this body of death incapable of sin that will be a glorious and wonderful feeling, I think. Because in my new nature, I hate sin. I hate me. I used to joke, like, you know, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, I don't like me, so it's easy. That's, that's no big deal for me. So you have, you have this righteous judge. He's sitting on his bench, and we've been found guilty as lying, cheating, stealing, adulterous murderers. We've earned the death penalty. It's not just dying and being dead. It's an eternal death where you really can't die. Eternal punishment. And this is not only the judge, he's the executioner. We've earned this eternal death in hell. And this righteous judge, he has, he has one option. He's got this perfect son. And this perfect son has never broken one of the laws ever in his entire life. And he offers this, he offers up this perfect son to take the punishment that you earned and you deserved. The same punishment. And he's willing to set you free. The righteousness that he had is credited to you because it was as you, as if you lived that life that his perfect son did. And he willingly pours out his wrath on his perfect son. Side note, you ever thought that Jesus has been the only person to ever live that knew what the wrath of God is like? The only person that's walked this earth that knew what the wrath of God was like, and he willingly took it because of not only his great love for his father, but his great love for you. So this transaction takes place, and you're declared innocent. And I'm like, okay, I'm free to go, right? And I don't have to worry about this anymore, but it's not done. Then this righteous judge... Because not only did he love his son with a perfect love, he loves you with the same perfect love. And he comes down off the bench and he clothes you with the same robe of righteousness that his son wears. And he says, now you're mine. You're my child. I'm going to love you as my own with the same great love that I've had from all eternity for my perfect son. It's as if you... We're him and now. 
and nothing can change that. I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to see you as my son. I can't disown you or kill you as the Romans could. And then all that I have is yours. All that I've created. All the things that you can see and know and understand and then countless other things that you cannot see and know and understand. It's all yours. That's the love of a perfect father. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took our punishment on our behalf, your perfect righteous justice on our behalf. Lord, today I pray that if any do not know you, that today would be their birthday into the kingdom of heaven, be born again, be adopted by you, brought into your family, and loved perfectly for all eternity. We love you and we praise you and all of God's children said.